When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird, we're doing Monday Madness. That means we're talking about an Ohio State issue. We're talking about a national college uh, football issue. And then at the end, what you watching? I think we'll do some Oscar talk there. What you eating, what you thinking. And I have a particular thing that happened that made me feel old. There are a lot of things that make me feel old, though. So this was a specific thing that also like made me feel like kind of grateful and wistful, mostly old, though. But, Nathan, we're going to start talking about the Ohio State Buckeyes. And this is kind of a national topic and an Ohio State topic at the same time. And you have looked this up. And I will say you sent this along to me. But also I am now just I'm sports betting is kind of just like a part of my day. Now I have multiple apps. I reference them. I sprinkle here and there. I thought the other night that uh, the Nets were coming off a back-to-back and a long road trip, and they were home, but they were coming off a tough loss to the Sixers, and the Pistons had two days off. So I took the Pistons on the money line at plus 235, and that hit. So, of course, you only talk about – by the way, everyone knows that. You only talk about gambling your wins, right? It was, oh, well, that person must win all the time. It's like I can – show you the losses but anyway so in a world where gambling on your phone is now legal in ohio like looking up things like hey what are the futures title odds in college football just become like a much more like normal part of your day and easier to do but that's what we're going to start on this buckeye talk national title odds for 2023 and where ohio state fits into that discussion where do the buckeyes fit in nathan well, I thought this was a good way now, as we talked earlier this week, I was sort of resetting the year because this is now the Ohio State's national placement is always a topic of conversation. It frames how we talk about the roster. It frames how we talk about the coaching staff. It frames how we talk about each game. But now we also have where does Michigan fall into that? And I think the head to head comparison of Ohio State and Michigan, because of what the Wolverines have done head to head with Ohio State the last two years now changes this conversation a little bit. I think we look at the offseason and and look ahead to numbers like this a little bit differently. So this is per FanDuel, and these were uh, as of January 19th. Uh, so I don't know. I doubt they have changed that much in the last eight days. But 
not shockingly, Georgia is the national championship favorite per that site. This is at, at plus 250. And I'll give you that. I think that number is really only given as a reference to um, where everybody else is, obviously. Alabama is number two at plus 450. And then Ohio State is third at plus 700. And Michigan behind that, plus 1,200. And just to, for context, USC and Clemson come in next after that, plus 1,600, LSU plus 1,800. But I thought that was a an interesting thing to see, that Ohio State is closer to Georgia than Ohio State is to Michigan in terms of the odds. Uh, you know, Georgia plus 250, Ohio State plus 700, and then Michigan plus 1,200. And I we had speculated about that immediately after the game, that who's going to be picked to win the Big Ten next year after Michigan's beaten Ohio State head-to-head two years in a row and has so many good players coming back. Who is going to be uh, higher than in the first AP poll of the, the preseason? Will it be Ohio State or will it be Michigan? Now that Michigan has sort of claimed that spot. And I think that what we see there is somewhat reflective of the last game that both of those teams played, which was regardless of what they did head-to-head, when they went on the national stage, Ohio State was right there an eyelash away from beating Georgia and then probably winning the national championship after that. And Michigan gave up a billion points to TCU and looked like it was going to get boat raced at at one point. I think that is probably reflected in the way those lines are set right now. So this is an interesting season because it's the same place that we were two years ago, where after the 2020 season going into 2021, Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson, at the time, the three big dogs in college football, all had new starting quarterbacks. It was going to be DJ Uyunglele at Clemson, Bryce Young at Alabama, and CJ Stroud at Ohio State. They're the three top recruits in that quarterback class. They were all going to be starters as second-year quarterbacks. And you just, no matter how good they are and and how good the teams are, it's hard to go three for three, and they didn't go three through three. They went two for three. Bryce and CJ worked. DJ did not. And we are at a place right now, Nathan, when you think about odds like this in the national scene, Alabama, new quarterback next year. And I don't think they know who it's going to be. I guess probably Ty Simpson. Jalen Milrow was the guy who played this season when Bryce was out. There's still sort of like this percolating, will Bama get a transfer portal quarterback? You don't know who Alabama's quarterback is going to be. Ohio State has a battle with Kyle McCord and Devin Brown where you don't know for sure who Ohio State's quarterback is going to be. And Stetson Bennett is leaving Georgia. And Clemson is not a big dog right now, so Clemson's going to have Cade Klubnick. But Georgia is the other team now, obviously. So Stetson Bennett is gone, and it's going to be Carson Beck probably or maybe Brock Vandegrift or Snack. So the three best teams, three best programs, three best teams are all going to have new quarterbacks. And then, Nathan, Michigan has a third-year dude back. J.J. McCarthy's back. Washington, Michael Penix is still there. Um, Florida State has its quarterback back. Oregon has its quarterback back. Texas has its quarterback back. So many teams in the next tier have veteran quarterbacks returning, but the three best teams do not. And it creates, I think, an interesting dynamic because a lot of times our certainty about any team in the offseason is directly related to its quarterback situation. And you can have optimism and hope and the idea that we always say, well, Ohio State's going to have a good quarterback. Maybe you don't know who it's going to be, but the guy will be good. Georgia's going to have a good quarterback. You don't know who it's going to be, but the guy will be good. Same for Alabama. But are those three programs going to go three for three? 
and finding the right guy in being able to contend for a national title when they're going to be playing quarterbacks who have not really played before. And then when you're looking, I'll tell you one of the things when you start looking at like off the radar stuff, we did this on the college football survivor show and we were kind of talking about who could be the TCU of 2023, sort of this off the radar team. And I honestly, I can't remember who I said. It's probably because I didn't pick a very good team. But Shahan said Wisconsin. And the idea of a team in the Big Ten, if Wisconsin keeps the best of what they do and adds this whole new world of a passing game with Tanner Mordecai at quarterback and Phil Longo as the offensive coordinator and Luke Fickle bringing it all together, Luke Fickle might be where Sonny Dykes is, right? You know, and Luke Fickle's more, Sonny Dykes was good before. Luke Fickle's been in the playoff. So, like, what do you think about Wisconsin? So, that quarterback thing, Nathan, I think we should, right? Those are, those are the three best programs. They have the shortest national title odds. But we don't know who their starting quarterbacks are, which makes it all a little bit goofy in January, at least. Yeah, so maybe that's actually a better way to look at what those odds are, that they're baked into Again, regardless of what those results were last year, there is right now, I think, a confidence nationally that regardless of who Georgia's quarterback is, their infrastructure is going to be national championship caliber. And regardless of Alabama's quarterback, there is reasonable certainty that they are going to have a pretty loaded roster otherwise. And for Ohio State, regardless of who who Ryan Day picks at quarterback, he'll probably work out because that keeps happening at Ohio State. Now going, we're in our fifth administration or whatever you want to say, I guess, or sixth, I suppose, but, you know, definitely, you know, Haskins, Fields, Stroud, and now you're moving on to um, whoever ends up winning this job this this spring and summer. So I think some of that is reflected there too, that these these programs have pushed themselves up. But I also do think that if I were a Michigan fan and looked at this, I would probably feel a little bit disrespected after what they've done the last two years, especially beating Ohio State head-to-head, and the fact that they do have a quarterback coming back who uh, does did not have a Heisman-caliber year, but proved he could win big games, go on the road to Ohio State and win, and do it like largely as a result of what how that quarterback executed. That answers some of those questions. That that shouldn't be like a question Michigan you have about Michigan, I think, at this point. Maybe there's a question about his production ceiling but the, the fact that he can do frankly kind of Stetson Bennett ish things like just be the guy who goes in and finds a way to win tough games it, it, in big moments didn't do it against TCU but absolutely did it against Ohio State has done it in back-to-back Big Ten championship games too against I know not playoff caliber teams so I, I would still uh, that, that does surprise me still a little bit the discrepancy between Ohio State and Michigan there uh, because I I wonder what the voting will be like eventually within the Big Ten going into this season. Like, do people still see Ohio State at that great of a separation above Michigan right now? And as we know, this is all about public money. Yeah, this is not. This is so. The idea of I I could see a world where, as you said, right now Ohio State's seven to one and Michigan's twelve to one. But when we do our Cleveland.com preseason Big Ten survey, Michigan's picked. I can yep. see a world where when we get down to the coaches poll and the AP poll in the preseason, the gap between Michigan and Ohio State, I don't know. Maybe Michigan's ahead. I, I don't know. But I, I bet all those gaps will be smaller than 12 to 1 to 7 to 1, which is where the odds are right now. But to be fair, 
maybe it's also a reflection of people who watched last year and said, like, well, regardless of what happened in that game, which one was actually better positioned to win a national championship? Which one actually had a better team that was national championship caliber? I think that was probably proven out again by what they saw a few weeks later in the in the semifinals. So that is also that's the most fresh thing in people's minds. Um, and I keep saying people, but it's. It, you know, as you make a very good point that this isn't necessarily a judgment of team strength. It is a it is a reflection of other factors that are going into why why a line is set. But that is right now, just nationally, that is the thing that people have the most fresh in their minds is Ohio State coming one point away from beating Georgia in Atlanta as opposed to whatever happened in Columbus. So to the other point that I was making, let's run through this real quick. This is everybody who's 30 to 1 or less to win the national title in order. Nathan already did the odds. Georgia, not sure who the quarterback's going to be. Bama, not sure who the quarterback's going to be. Ohio State, not sure. Michigan, J.J. McCarthy, returning starter. USC, Caleb Williams, Heisman winner, returning starter. Clemson, Clade Club, Cade Club, Nick. Started the bowl game. Everybody was waiting for him. Even Dabo after the season said, I kind of was waiting for Cade Klubnik to take the job. So he wasn't the starter last year, but he's more of a known quantity than anybody at the other three schools. LSU, Jaden Daniels, back as the starter. Notre Dame, getting Sam Hartman from Wake Forest. Multi-year starter in Power 5. Veteran guy. Florida State, Jordan Travis, back as the starter. Penn State, Drew Aller's going to start. Don't know a ton about him, but we know who it's going to be. So I don't know if that is Penn State in much of a different place than Ohio State is with quarterback. They're going to play a younger, a, a young guy who hasn't started. Well, at least I know who it's going to be. Again, as Ryan Day would say, well, I'd rather have two. Penn State's got Drew Aller. Whether Drew Aller looks awesome or terrible in the spring, Drew Aller's the starter in August. Ohio State has two options. Washington, Michael Penix, back. Led the nation in passing yards, back. Tennessee lost Hendon Hooker. I guess it's going to be Joe Milton, the former Michigan transfer. So that's similar level of uncertainty. Yeah. Oregon, Bo Nix, stayed at Oregon. Veteran guy going to be back. Texas, Quinn Ewers, back. So that's, again, that's quarterback, 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 quarterback. And the teams at the top, some uncertainty. I don't know. I'd spin it. But if you're Michigan, to your point, I don't know. I guess I'd try to spin some. How dare how dare those betting apps? You ever get, you know, you, hey, you got a, you guys ever have a phone? I don't know. I remember back John and I, you know, we'd have a phone and, you know, what is a phone? It's just a, it's just a way that, you know, you bring people together and talking and now there's apps and saw a meme, you know, there's an app and a meme and what's an app and, you know, just a phone. So and now, but their phone's saying like, hey, hey, screenshot this. Bam! How dare you? How dare you, sir? 12 to 1 versus 7 to 1? I could be outraged. You can get them outraged about that. And now that we're posting these on YouTube, people will finally know that it isn't actually Jim Harbaugh that just jumped on the podcast I know. at a moment's notice. They'll know it was just you talking. It's not nearly as fun. The, the illusion is can been... see when I, when I shake my head when I do other impersonations. Great. You're the guy who wanted to <laughs> blame Nathan. <laughs> blame me. I am the one. I pulled the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz here. And you can't see it, but I have a monkey. If you're on YouTube, I have a monkey behind me. On the we, pod, you can't, can't see it. <laughs> I can't see it. I was just actually present. noticing the monkey uh, as you went into, as Jim as Jim joined us. And yeah. 
I, I guess the way I would look at it though is like if if we're picking like who I think you're making another good point. Like if you're actually picking who if you're gonna put a bet down, what what teams are like the most interesting odds? I don't know if it's any of those top three. I think it's a lot of these teams that are down below that. Like it, because of starting with Michigan and really kind of working your way down, there are a lot of really interesting teams there. Uh, it, it certainly, I it, as far as like odds just to make the playoff, which I don't have right in front of me, but some of those other teams are really intriguing there because if you're you know uh, USC or Oregon, where you may only have like one really good team that you have to get past or Washington. Yeah. I mean, actually that, never mind. That's actually a really interesting top of the pack 12 this year, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's some teams out there that have like already had a good infrastructure and they've got a returning quarterback and like now what's the opportunity in front of them in terms of schedule, etc. cetera. Uh, I think there's some, probably some interesting bets to be made out there. And it's hard because again, like we're talking about, these are national championship bets. I'm not seeing like make the playoff kind of bets. There's going to, of course, there's going to be conference champions and that kind of thing, but it's like, Hey, I, whatever TCU was in the preseason, 200 to one, if you bet them to win the national championship, you didn't win. No, but maybe you could cash out or, or hedge, like, like exactly. hedge when you get to the title game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can do so, that sort of thing. Like if you have enough money down on the 200 to one and they get far enough, a lot of times that side will come back around and be like, Hey, you want to just, how about take this less money than wait for to yeah. see if the lottery ticket pays off. So there is a way, I guess it, there is a way that there's still value to like, well, uh, TCU was a million to one and I put a dollar on them and I could have won a million dollars, but I won zero. Like that actually, if you, if you know the tiny little bit about betting, that doesn't have to be how it shakes out. But the hard thing about this is, is like sort of what you're talking about. It's like, Ooh, you know, it, it there's going to be a surprise team. The hard thing is picking which surprise team, right? But if you're like, you know what? I could really, I, I had like a Drake May spell for a moment, like one week on the Survivor Show. I was like, oh, Drake May is going to win the Heisman. North Carolina is 80 to one, right? I mean, if you want to go down the Luke Fickle is Sonny Dykes road, Wisconsin's 100 to one, right? I mean, if you want to, if you want to think that Kansas State was just scratching the surface, Kansas State is 200 to 1. If you think Oregon State is a bubbling powerhouse and they just got DJ, DJ Uyungle, transferred to Oregon State. Jonathan Smith's a great coach. Oregon State's coming off a 10 win season. I think it's there, 200 to 1. But are they going to beat Georgia? It's like they might make the playoff. They'd be like, they're at, they, that's a heck of a conversation. Could they be? sixth fifth maybe get in at fourth are they gonna beat alabama what's the world in which you because within we saw nathan when you're making this this conversation and this bet what's the actual conversation here it's tcu georgia right what are we talking like what like how tcu was awesome this year and they were how many miles were between tcu and georgia so then really at the top, there was there was an inch between Ohio State and Georgia. There was a there was a marathon between TCU and Georgia. So I do think that's why you get back to these three teams. Again, public money, of course, but also it's just about real realism. And that the 12 team playoff is going to be great. You, there's going to be a whole different world of thinking about things. But when you really get down to it, I think we've 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 Bridge the gap for the first conversation about greater parity in college football, which is more teams in the playoff. 
right? We've been doing the, Shahan and I've been doing the Survivor Show for two years now. And it started off the first eight years. The playoff, it was Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, and Oklahoma had taken up two-thirds of the spots. And now we're in a world where we've seen Cincinnati, we've seen TCU, we've seen Michigan rise up and Georgia rise up. None of those teams were the teams in the conversation the first eight years. They've made it. Now, the next question is, who can really win it? Because I think there's 30 teams. 18 teams who could make the playoff, who could make the playoff. You know, the T there's a TCU or a Cincinnati out there from a crop of teams, but who can really win it? Cause in the end, how close were TCU and Cincinnati to really winning the national title? Mm, I mean, they had a shot, but they weren't, they were in the fight, but nobody actually looked at them in the end and said, Oh no, no, that's, now, if Desmond Ritter played a little bit better against Alabama, you know, I don't know. But still, I, Cincinnati wasn't going to beat Alabama and Georgia. And TCU just was – that's 100 times out of 100 they lose to Georgia. So that's next, Nathan. And I don't know when we'll get there. I'll be curious how the 12-team playoff affects that. But right now, even for Michigan, that's Michigan has a fourth-best odds. Michigan needs to show a little bit more. They – they ascended this year. I think they got closer to being a team that you could legitimately pick for the national title. They were closer to that in 22 than they were in 21. So they're still ascending, but are they there, right? And I think a lot of that conversation in the end is the conversation we always have, which is if you're going to play a great defense, can you throw it well enough to do it? But maybe J.J. McCarthy in year three can. But that's why those three teams are separated at the top because in that conversation, it's still a... The playoff conversation has broadened. The national championship conversation is still pretty tight. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think, though, that Michigan, this will be kind of an interesting year for them. Because if the, I think you're right. The 2021 could have maybe been dismissed as like flukish or whatever. You know, you know, you, they lost to a Michigan State team that was good, but certainly not great. They then get some things in their favor at Ohio in the Ohio State game, whether it's the snow, whether it's the illnesses that that I'm not making excuses for Ohio State, but those things did factor into how Michigan was able to, to win that game. And Michigan also did just kind of kick their butt. But to come back and then do it again and to go into Ohio Stadium and do it, I, I thought just showed that now you're not comparing a team to a team. You start comparing a program to a program and the, the program strength starts to shift. It's something that Ohio State has to answer in an important way this year. Now they have to go back into Ann Arbor this year and find some way to kind of take that back. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by what Michigan, how, how they handle this. Cause it was another off season of Willie or won't he with Harbaugh and, and other weird things going around, around that program. And how do they respond to that and try to stay at this level? Because it's a hard thing to hold on to as I, Iowa State can tell you. I mean, you've pointed out many times how they've they've stayed in that sort of top six land, but to stay in that top three is is so much tougher, and you can you can fall out of that pretty easy. So, what does how does Michigan uh, stay up there, or or how does maybe I guess more of the point? How does Ohio State come back and and find a way to take that back from them? And also, this discussion national title odds, it's not a bet on the Ohio State Michigan game. Because does Ohio State have to beat Michigan to win the national title? No, Was this good. year a fluke? Or 
you know, could this, is this an actual path? And when you think about the teams on Ohio State's schedule, you know, I, I do think Wisconsin has a chance to be a pretty competitive team in 2023 and Ohio state has to go to Wisconsin. So it's one of these things. It's like, if we're going to talk about Ohio state as national title contender, they have to beat Wisconsin, but a win on the road at Wisconsin might be a really good win. A win at Notre Dame might be a really good win. Like there's, they might be even have even more of a case as an 11 and one non big 10 champ, or guess what? Maybe you lose to Michigan, but Michigan loses to Penn state and loses a crossover game. And all of a sudden that this is, I don't know. I, I haven't found it. I don't know what the betting odds are on Ohio State, Michigan, and Ann Arbor in 2023. That game. I don't know what the line is on that game. But that is not the same as betting Ohio State to win the national championship. So, you know, it could be like, oh, Michigan is favored at home against Ohio State. But Ohio State is still a heavier national title pick than Michigan it is. And I'm not so sure that might not make sense. It's a, you know, there's still a way, and especially, and I actually wanted to ask you this question about this, and we're not betting experts. We could have Tishu come on and talk about this at some point. In a 12-team playoff world that will start in 2024, will that increase or decrease Ohio State's preseason national championship odds because the playoff path gets tougher, but getting in the playoff gets easier. And as much as Ohio state has lost in the semifinal to Clemson twice has lost in the semifinal to, to Georgia. I would say Ohio state's biggest issue is getting in the playoff. Whereas Michigan, maybe its biggest issue is, beating multiple elite teams in a playoff. So how do you think the 12-team playoff will affect how we view Ohio State, whether it's reflected in betting odds or just in our perception of Ohio State's chances to win it all? It's a good question, and and you're right that someone like Tishu would be a better person to speculate on that and and maybe steady it, um, which I'm sure he'll, he'll do going into next year when they start doing that, or 2024, I should say. But I think it's a, it's a good point that in general the Ohio State issue with the playoff has not been every they're they're basically considered to have national championship caliber roster more or less every year. It's just a matter of do they get tripped up before they get a chance to to prove it, and that hasn't been the case with Michigan. There was obviously a long stretch there where they were considered good but not national championship relevant, and but again that is where they've they've started to to make the turn. And so now they've got their foot in the door. Do they uh, take advantage of that in a, in a, and make another step this year? Or does Ohio state come in and sort of knock them to the side and, and, and prove what, what seems to be still the consensus nationally, that that's still the superior program at the end of the day. I do think I would have a greater belief in, in Ohio state winning a national championship in a 12 team playoff, because I think their biggest issue is getting in. And I think it's going to be hard for anybody. Oh, now you got to beat. Florida State and Penn State and Alabama, or you've got to beat Georgia and Alabama and Clemson. I get it, but I think I ha- I would have a greater belief in their ability to do that than, like I would say, no, I think they can do that. But knowing, well, if they lose to Michigan, they're probably still in. They can lose a goofy game in October to somebody, and they're still in. 
as opposed to like the razor thin margins that exist for everybody right now. When everybody wants the Big Ten to be better, but then the big a better Big Ten makes it harder for Ohio State to go undefeated. And if you're not undefeated in the regular season, you just don't know. So I, to me, I think Ohio State becomes a heavier national. I would feel better betting on Ohio State, I think, in the 12-team playoff than in the 14-team playoff. Because I would think, okay, here's my preseason bet. I'm pretty sure they're going to make it. And then once they're in, I think they have as good a shot as anybody. As opposed to, eh, like they better not have a bad Saturday this fall or they're not even going to get the chance to get there. So I'll be curious to see uh, how all that shakes out. Okay, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to look at the national perspective with a question that is driven by the firing. I really have turned these into much bigger like TV schlocky guy teases going into the break than we used to do. I really, I don't know if that's good or bad. I guess it's one of those things. If guys do it on TV, I don't know. They're at the top of the profession. They're making oh. millions of dollars, but I, I don't know. Are they the good teases? Should I do the teases or should we just stop talking, listen to a DraftKings ad, and then we talk again? Are people really going to leave? Do they leave in the middle of the podcast? That's the tricky thing is, does the ad actually show up? I think that, I think the teases are really good. When you're like teasing and then there actually is like a couple ads and people might have to wait a minute. But there's many oh, times yeah. where the, the thing, the robot doesn't put the ad in. And so it's just like you 30 seconds of one of us teasing and then it's just and I'm back. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Because the gap we put when we edit is like a second. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, like we have more ads and those are good, but we don't know when they're going to drop in exactly from who. It depends where you live anyway. Now we've driven everybody away on Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back. Josh Gaddis got fired. He was the name, the best assistant coach in college football in 2021 when he was Michigan's offensive coordinator. When Jim Harbaugh was dancing with the Minnesota Vikings and thinking he was going to get that job, I think maybe Josh Gaddis thought he was going to become the head coach at Michigan. I don't know that he would have, but I think maybe he thought it's like, well, I'm the best assistant coach in the country. The head coach just left. Like, this is not rocket science. Let's do this. And then instead, he, Harbaugh stays, and he chooses to leave, and he's hired by Mario Cristobal at Miami, and he is Miami's offensive coordinator. And I thought Tyler Van Dyke was an interesting preseason Heisman dark horse. <laughs> Complete fiasco at Miami in year one. And then, like, by October, Mario Cristobal, in his first year, the head coach was like, what were you, if you were picking us, what were you doing? This is not a year one kind of deal here, you idiots. And I was like, but Tyler Van Dyke. So he got fired on Friday. Josh Gaddis did. And Nathan, it, it, as we spend a lot of time talking about assistant coaches and especially coordinators here, right? Oh, they had to hire Jim Knowles. They had $2 million a year to get to go that guy, get that guy head coach of the defense. Oh, Ryan Day, should it be the play caller? Well, if you hired an offensive coordinator, are you grooming Brian Hartline? Like, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And then Josh Gaddis is the offensive coordinator. Michigan makes a leap. He gets a lot of credit for that. He gets an award for that. He gets hired away. Michigan is fine without him. And he gets fired after year one. And then the question is, do coordinators not matter or not matter as much as we sometimes think? How are we supposed to read this two-year arc of Josh Gaddis? 
Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I mean, I'm sure that there are other elements at play here, personality clashes, maybe whatever. It's it's a, you know a, a new scenario there. It wasn't like he was still at Michigan and got fired a year later. But I mean, on the, Ohio State has seen this play out in person as well, where they would, I think, if you were an Ohio State fan of especially a very recent vintage, you would say absolutely defensive or coordinators matter. Like, have you seen? what happened with our defense where it just kind of rode a roller coaster sometimes, depending on who was coordinating that defense. And, and it was, you know, very good at, in certain years and, and uh, was the, the detriment to the season in other years. And it seemed to tie into who was leading the defense. Um, I still though would point to those instances and say, you can really point to a lot of personnel issues with those same teams. So maybe that's actually the, the, the true answer here is that, your coordinator can matter a little bit as far as like maybe making the crucial differences um, when you have the talent and it's just a matter of tweaking the right things and putting it in the right places. I think the coordinators maybe matter a lot in terms of wins and losses when you're, when your talent isn't there, when you're trying to really bring the most out of it and having to really scheme up things to disguise weaknesses, to emphasize fewer strengths. And that seems to be what even Mario Cristobal was trying to say was probably a play in Miami this year, that that was a bigger lift than anybody was expecting from the outside. So I don't know to what degree Josh Gaddis has like a Josh Gaddis offense. And this is one of those where I, I think it could. So, so Michigan succeeds in 2021. And at the time I said, I thought Josh Gaddis did a really good job with a team that did not throw it very effectively. I thought Michigan had a creative run game, that they were balanced, not run pass, but they were still balanced as an offense because they were limited with their receivers. Ronnie Bell got hurt early that year. Cade McNamara is just not going to wow anybody throwing the ball. But I thought the way Michigan ran it, inside, outside, they'd run it with not running backs, just everything. I thought there was a, a lot of variety to that offense, at, to credit Josh Gaddis. And then Gaddis leaves, and I think they retained – almost all of the good stuff that you saw in 21. You saw it again in 22 with Sharon Moore and Matt Weiss. Now, now calling the shots as co-offensive coordinators. And by the way, Matt Weiss got fired too, because he did something with his computers or was alleged to have done that. Michigan's investigating his computer usage and they fired their quarterbacks, coach and offensive coordinator, co-offensive coordinator. I think Sharon Moore mattered more this year, but anyway, I do think within that, Nathan, I think there's some proof here of it's the Jim Harbaugh offense and Jim Harbaugh, wants to do what Jim Harbaugh wants to do. And in the end, Jim Harbaugh, through his time at Michigan, zeroed in specifically and really figured out, this is what we want to do. With the kind of running backs we have, with the offensive line play we expect, this is what we're going to do, Josh. This is what we're going to do, whoever's calling the plays. And then when Josh Gaddis goes to Miami, and again, being in the film room, watching the film with the Ohio State offensive staff, like the Ryan Day offense is a thing. Like Ryan Day, if Ryan Day left, Ryan Day would take down all the magnets off the board and take that with him. Josh Gaddis is an interesting career arc. He's the receivers coach at, at Penn State. And there's this time when Alabama's hiring a receivers coach. And Zach Smith is like in the mix for that Alabama receivers job. And I don't know exactly what went down, but they wound up hiring Josh Gaddis. And Josh Gaddis at Alabama is like co-offensive coordinator in 18 with Mike Loxley, but Mike Loxley's running the show. So he's like a co, he's like has an offensive coordinator title, but he's not a play caller. And then he leaves and comes to Michigan and then he's a play caller at Michigan. 
So the Michigan was where he really was a play caller for the first time. So, but this leads me to think like, well, he's, he's play calling what Jim Harbaugh wants to do. And then when he left, maybe there wasn't your point about personnel. Of course you're right. I don't want to like the players weren't as good. The structure wasn't as good. Stuff fell apart. That's 90% of this, but maybe Jim Harbaugh has created an offense at Michigan where as long as you're on the same page as him and you're relatively smart, you have a chance to call a pretty good offense in the Jim Harbaugh system. And maybe, and the reason that this would matter for Ohio State fans, Nathan, is maybe Ryan Day has created an offense. If he hands that off, Brian Hartline takes it over, not maybe this year, but next, whatever, if they're grooming that, you know what? As long as you're you're a smart football guy, you have a connection to Ryan Day. You're not trying to buck any trends. You're going along for the ride. You're thinking the same way. There's a lot of people who can succeed as the offensive coordinator when the offense is established. And so I think we have to glean something from 2021. Josh Gaddis and Michigan are good together. 2022, they're apart. Michigan's still good, and Josh Gaddis isn't. We have to glean something from that, but I think it might ease some concerns that anybody around Ohio State would potentially have about Ryan Day not being the hands-on play caller anymore, if and when that ever happens. Yeah, and I, I've actually been thinking about that a lot, like this this concept that a lot of Ohio State fans were really pushing for Ohio State to promote Brian Hartline even before it happened. But it wasn't because Brian Hartline is like some great offensive mind. It was mostly about we got to keep Brian Hartline. He has to stay here and keep recruiting these guys, and we we don't want him to leave and and go somewhere else and 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 take that away from the program. So I, I one of the things I kind of tried was always kind of pushing was like, hey, like there are some repercussions here potentially, but it's less on offense because you're right, like you are handing you are working from a script. It's it's um you know, you're, it's, it's like a Broadway play or whatever, where, yeah, yeah. Somebody else started the play. It's like, we went and saw, um, to kill a mockingbird on a trip to New York a couple years ago, the Rutgers trip. And we saw, yep. Um, Ed Harris in Ed the Harris. role, in the, in the role, but it had been started. Well, actually it'd been started many, many years before. This is the Aaron Sorkin version. I've been started by Jeff Daniels who had come over from working on the newsroom and stuff with him. So it would be like if, you know, it's one thing that could go wrong. Like even if it's a really good actor, you're passing a role. And even if you're working from the same script, but now this is like, if Jeff Daniels had like passed the role off, but was then also still directing the play, like is still also there, like giving him notes and, and, and helping him still do the same, essentially the same performance. Not a great analogy because you're obviously trying to make a role your own somewhat at, at the, in the Broadway level we're here. You're just trying to win a game. It's not, it's not artistic, but the same, I think analogy does apply a little bit because you're right. That Ryan day is more is still there as the director, even if he's not the, the guy performing in the same way on a play to play basis. We still haven't fully hashed out exactly how that is going to work. And maybe Ohio state hasn't fully hashed it out either. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear like how they're going to balance that out because our assumption is that Ryan day will still, at least maybe for this first year, be fairly hands-on, but I'm sure that they're, you take the training wheels off at some point in some of these games and maybe let Brian Hartline, let Brian Hartline cook a little bit um, as he gets his gets, but that was something that you couldn't do 
with, for, for instance, Gary Combs. Like that wasn't Ryan Day's purview. He had to turn a whole side of the the team over to someone else. And when it went wrong, it wasn't as easily fixed. It wasn't as easily corrected. So I think that, that this should assuage Ohio State fans uh, any fears that they have because it, it is so different than what they saw and what you're seeing in a, in a place, a situation like with Josh Gaddis. I'll be curious how this works out now for Gaddis because I do think there might be a comparison with Kerry Combs here, which is just life, which is you're really good at something and then you get promoted to the next thing and you're not quite as good as that thing, but man, you are still good at the first thing. And Josh Gaddis is young. He's not even 40 yet. He has plenty of time. But when he was the Penn, I think he's a Franklin guy, right? He was at Vanderbilt and he was at Penn State. When he was at Penn State, he was a receivers coach and the recruiting coordinator. You know, my friends who covered Penn State said he was great. Like, he was great at that job. And when you're great at a job, you want to be promoted. So then he goes to Alabama, wants to have more responsibility, has that coordinator title, but he's not calling plays. Now he has a chance to call plays. I don't know. Kerry Combs was great at what he did. Great as a cornerback's coach. Great as a recruiter. When it was time for him to call plays defensively, he wasn't as good at it. So what I'll be, because there could be an impact here, and I don't know what it's going to be. But Josh Gaddis is now on the market. I don't know. Like Minnesota just lost Kirk Shiraka, was their offensive coordinator, that went back to Rutgers to be their offensive coordinator. I don't know who, and there's going to be some more movement. There's going to be some NFL movement that's going to create movement in staffs that guys who are currently in college are going to wind up with NFL jobs. And there's going to be some other stuff open. Like the stuff that we know what Josh Gaddis is good at. And there's a chance that he could go be a difference maker. Maybe he's not going to get a chance to coordinate right away again. But if he goes somewhere as a receivers coach and a recruiter, especially if it's a, a national power that Ohio State has to contend with or somebody in the Big Ten, all of a sudden Josh Gaddis is getting to work there. That's going to be interesting. But this, I mean, obviously, I think this is how it's the Peter principle, right? I mean, that's there's a name for it. You get promoted above your level of expertise. And I'm not saying that Josh Gaddis is never going to be an offensive play caller again and a good one. And he very well may end up being a head coach someday. Cause that's the other thing too. I don't think you have to be a tremendous play caller on either side of the ball to be a head coach. You have to be able to have a style of offense that you want to run a style of defense. You want to run. You have to be able to communicate that. You have to be able to hire. Well, you have to be able to inspire, create a culture, lead players. I think it's very possible. Josh Gaddis will do all that, but you know, urban was never a coordinator before he was a head coach. So I'll be curious to see what happens with Josh Gaddis. But this is a little bit of a weird one. That Broyles Award, right? People, I think people actually might care about that too much because I think in the end, it's like, what? I think there's a lot of perception to the Broyles Award. People don't really know digging in. It's the best assistant coach. It's like, well, it goes to a very good team that maybe exceeded expectations on a certain side of the ball. And then you give it to that coordinator. So I don't know. Was Josh Gaddis actually the best assistant coach in college football? Probably not. But Broyles Award winner to fired is still a pretty big dichotomy for 24 months. Yeah, yeah. That, that is a, a quick turnaround. And like any of the coaching awards, that's what they're, they're generally based on, right? Like you exceeded expectations and, um, and here it is. I think the Broyles Award has been elevated because all of the national reporters have to pat the Burroughs Award winner on the back to promote all the assistant coaches that they use to get their information from, right? 
Oh yeah, no, yeah. So that's it. It is a good, it is a good uh, pat on the back kind of thing. Let's talk. But again, uh, there's a lot of. Let's just run through this. So Garrett Riley, the TCU offensive coordinator, won it this year. Now he's a Clemson offensive coordinator. Got hired there. Josh Gaddis in 21. Steve Sarkeesian at Alabama in 2020. Offensive coordinator for that high-powered offense. Now he's and then becomes a Texas head coach. Joe Brady at LSU in 2019, as hot as can be. Loxley at Alabama in 2018 becomes the Maryland head coach. Tony Elliott and Brent Venables at Clemson won it back-to-back years. Guess who won it in 2015? Lincoln Riley. On his way to becoming head coach, Lincoln Riley, 2014, who won it? Tom Herman as the offensive coordinator of this Ohio State offense. 2013, Pat Narduzzi at Michigan State becomes the pit head coach. Why did he win it? Because they beat Mich- they beat Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game, right? They had a great year. Pat Narduzzi helped. That was a defense-first program, and he was a, de- a defensive coordinator. And then, you know, you don't get a job. You don't get to be a head coach because you won the Broyles Award. But I bet presidents care when the AD says, hey, this is our guy. It's like he just – he has this award. It's like, oh, he has an award. So and yeah, when you get to say, good. I'm not poo-pooing awards. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you mean? He's only an assistant coach. Well, like, he's not just an assistant coach. He's the best assistant coach in the country. They just said so. I can go – since we have a podcast, I have a, a, a thing in my office. It's the best thing I ever got. I don't even know what it was for. It was like from like 1997 in Indiana – then it's some newspaper award for like in the circulation category of newspapers with a circulation between 150 and 550 readers. You had the third best sports story yeah. for, and, but the trophy is a bust of Mark Twain for oh, some nice. reason. And it, I have it on my desk. Why is it so good? It's too, it really was for like newspapers that, are practically newsletters that almost are just like a family Christmas card. That category, but the award is a bust of more trains. So you won an award. When I when I went and sat in Urban Meyer's office when he was at Ohio State in 19, after he had quit and he was the assistant, whatever, what, an associate AD, and in his office, and he had a decent amount of decorations, but this wasn't his big giant coaching office, right, that you have when you have the big giant coaching office in the Woody. They have a couch. They have like a couch, and they have a they have like two couch areas actually. I think and they have all kinds. Everybody's got all kinds of stuff. Ryan Day has a Dwayne Haskins signed jersey in there. He has a Matt Ryan signed jersey in there from Boston College. It's like you you do things to commemorate your best teams, your best players, all kinds of family photos, all that kind of stuff. So Urban then when he had his office in 2019. He's in the Fawcett Center, which is where the athletic administration is, and it's just like a little suite. And in this suite, it's like, all right, well, like, well, Gene's over here, and then the assistant AD, and then over here, it's like, here's an associate AD. It's not a cubicle, but it's not. It's an office. It has a door, but he's Urban Meyer, and it's like, yeah. I mean, I know it's part time. He was teaching a class. He was doing Fox stuff, but for Urban Meyer, it wasn't the world's biggest office. Anyway, the decorations. Very prominently displayed were, I think, three large, and I think a lot of them are busts also, like head coaching awards. He had them in his office. I think he had a, I think he had an Eddie Robinson trophy for that. That's one of the coaching awards that you get. And I think he had one or two others, like very prominently displayed. So people care about coaching awards 
but it they don't guarantee you that you'll never get fired. And so Josh Gaddis got a trophy one year and a pink slip the next. But I think he'll be a good hire for somebody. He will be. He'll be a good hire for somebody. He has a chance to he has a chance to make a difference for a team um this year. And I'm and I'm always curious, whenever stuff like this happens, Nathan, it's like I think he should be back in the Big Ten. He's been at Penn State, he's been at Michigan. Like this is a great Minnesota hire. This is a great Illinois hire. This is a great Michigan State hire. Like get good people, get good coaches back in this conference. That's what the Big Ten Network money is for. Let him come in here and make an impact for somebody again, doing what he does best while he sort of resets his career a little bit. So I'll be curious to see what happens with Josh Gaddis. All right. We're going to do what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking. We'll do that next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Nathan, let's start with what you eaten first. We haven't done Monday Madness for a while. Um, your baby is growing, mm-hmm. I assume. Babies grow. Yep. How old is Bennett now? He will be uh, nine months on nine months in, yeah. on February first. I do think nine months is big because that means that that's as much out time as in time. Yep. Right. So now you're you're evening that up. That's a big deal. Congratulations to Ben. Yeah, he's been great. So you know, baby's getting a little older. So you know, you guys are getting you know, you're still I'm sure you're still not sleeping and you're still crazy and you still have to take care of a baby. But, you know, getting back to normal, a little more normal human activity. Is that fair to say? A little bit, yeah. And, and actually, the sleeping has taken a turn for the good, finally. It was not good for most of the season. And he finally, we were actually getting ready. There's this, you know, this whole sleep training thing. And we were kind of waiting for me to get out of season so that we could put forward this plan. And there was this whole, like, long document that I needed to read. And then somehow we came back from, uh, the holidays and me being in Atlanta and everything else. And like that week, just on his own, he just started sleeping through the night. <laughs> we had, oh. we got to skip all the horrible sleep training where you're supposed to there just like go. let your baby scream and you try to sleep with like earphones on or something. So you ignore their screams of anguish. Well, good for him taking matters into his own hands. I respect yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so as part of your normal human activity return, I assume you're eating. So what you've been eating? So I wanted to shout this place out, and this may only be a, a good reference for people in Columbus because I think it's only a takeout. But uh, we love barbecue. Um, not not a not a not a hot take, <laughs> not, a, not a controversial stance. It's one of our favorite cuisines. And there's obviously a couple of good places around Columbus, but we've driven by this place a couple of times called B and K Smokehouse. It's on Main Street, and I want people to understand like those smokehouses, those kind of things have really grown in popularity. I think the last few years all over the country and they tend to be, you know, sort of fancy. There's, there's several places here in Columbus and in the suburbs. Uh, this is not that this is like very kind of bare bones. I'm not trying to diminish it all. Cause I thought it was the food there was great, but I just want people to understand that it's very much kind of one of almost those hole in a wall kind of places. And I mean that in, at least from my viewpoint, our viewpoint, that's sort of a selling point that uh, the less like, corporate it is the more it's just kind of like down home cooking and uh i had ribs there we had uh, brisket from there fantastic um so it's again i think it's, it's really only a carry out deal so maybe if you're in town for a, a game and it's an evening game and you want to grab something on your way to a tailgate and you happen to be coming in on the east side swing by b&k smokehouse on main street uh good stuff if you're going to a barbecue 
cube place, are you always going to try the ribs that are for sure? Uh, not necessarily. I because ribs are are kind of a, de- a thing. Like where you have to put some work into it. Sometimes I'm not into that. Sometimes I'm more likely. The one thing that if it's on the menu that I usually will try is that they have smoked turkey. Because that isn't like mm. necessarily something that every place has. There's a great place back in uh, Lafayette called South Street Smokehouse that has fantastic uh, smoked turkey with like the real, like the peppery uh, edges and everything, and uh, really good stuff. And so that that's kind of spoiled me a little bit on that. But you don't find it everywhere. Every place has brisket. Every place has pulled pork. Every place has some kind of chicken. And and a lot of places will have ribs. Uh, people who are from barbecue places, people who are from like Kansas City. Um, I know they, they are really like sketchy, but almost the way that I am about like, do I really want to try seafood someplace where there's no water near it? <laughs> like, I think that's how people are sometimes wary of trying barbecue outside of the, the capitals of barbecue. So, but I'm, I'm a little bit more open-minded than that. And I did have the ribs here and they were really good. Yeah, I'm not a. I'm a fan of the of the pulled meats. That's typically what I do when I go to a barbecue joint. Pulled pork, always looking for pulled chicken, like the smoked turkey, that kind of thing. I'm just not a rib guy, but I feel like maybe I need to open my open my heart, which would be good because the ribs are are, are right around the heart. So if I open my heart to ribs, it's very convenient geographically within the structure of a body, whether it's a person's body or an animal's body. And I assume most of the time when you're eating ribs, it's not human ribs. Is that it's animal ribs. Whose animal? Is it a pig's ribs? Is it a horse's ribs? We did a whole horse podcast. It's not horse's ribs, right? Wait, we Cow did a- ribs? What ribs are they? I have not listened to the rants. It was all horses this time. <laughs> Friday's pod was all it horses. Was, it, was, it was 18% horses. Mm. It was 18% horses. That's probably enough horses. Which that's, is, that's which like is our, also like, if you eat... That's our annual horse quota here on Buckeye If you Talk. eat... If you eat horse ribs, I think actually you get 18% horse as well. It's like, how much yeah. of the horse is that? It's like about 18% on the ribs. These were. But are we to assume when you. Sorry, go ahead. Because you don't. Because listen, that's interesting. There are times when you eat an animal and you eat the name of the animal. And there are also times when you eat an animal when you eat the body part of the animal and it could be multiple animals. So, like, if you're eating hoof, it's like, oh, I had some good hoof. You don't know what kind of hoof you're getting. Or do we do we is that an assumption that everybody knows it's like ribs mean pig ribs or they also could mean cow ribs or is there not a rib assumption that any normal human should make? You should not make an assumption because there are multiple kinds and I'm glad you brought this up, Doug. This particular establishment had pork ribs. There are places that will have beef ribs, but this uh, B and K Smokehouse also had something on its menu that I did not try that I plan to at, at a future visit, because it's only like six minutes from my house, uh, they had something called turkey ribs. And I've never heard of oh. turkey ribs, but I'm I'm intrigued. And I don't know if, first of all, I, didn't, I don't know if turkeys have ribs. So is this sort of like a McRib kind of thing that's made out of turkey meat? Or do turkeys uh, right. have ribs that you can eat the same way you eat a beef rib or a, you know, you can, can you have just like St. Louis spares that are from turkey? I don't know. But I'm going to find out. Does everything, back. does everything have ribs? Like if you have a heart, do you have to have ribs to protect your heart? Unless you're like a snake. Hmm. Does a snake have ribs? I don't know. Let me get the OSU ag extension on the phone. I always oh, like yeah. when we end up having conversations that are like, you should have learned this in fourth grade. 
Does a snake have ribs? That sounds like a children's book. Does well, a snake? Yeah, some animals Daddy. don't have skeletons, so they wouldn't have ribs. Oh, that's true. You can't get like jellyfish. So I'm more interested in the animal itself than I am in the body part. Because there are certain animals that I want to eat. And then it's like, well, I don't know. I'll just eat every body part of that animal. Okay. So I was in football podcast. I was in New York City and it reminded me, it's like you just walk down the street. And I did this multiple times. Two slices and a can of Diet Coke for three bucks. Mm. Like you just are walking. I did it at two o'clock in the morning. I did it at four o'clock in the afternoon. My wife and I went and saw Stephen Colbert when we were there and we were in a hurry. My wife grabbed a hot dog off a cart. I stopped at a slice place and got slices in 45 seconds. With the rent that you must pay for any building in New York City, I don't understand how they can sell two slices and a can of soda for $3. It is, uh, and it's good. It's the pizza that I want. I wish I could walk outside my house right now and get those two slices, just a New York slice. And But the, the, the monetary transaction does not make sense to me. Like the prices on a lot of, you know, you go out to eat and there's a lot of places that are more expensive than they used to be. And this, I don't understand the math, Nathan. Is it just, well, we sell 200 pizzas or 500 pizzas worth of food a day that the quantity and it's just constant turnover is so high that we can sell it for a buck a slice. And I guess pizza ingredients, you know, just a little sprinkling of cheese, sauce, dough, it's whatever, flour and water. I guess it's not that expensive, but I'm still amazed that I was eating $1 slices in New York City, Nathan. Yeah, I think it's a volume thing. It's like there's, there's, you know, there's food that's like an artist made by an artist. That's like the really fancy places. And there's a food that's more like an artist's son. So that's like somewhere in the middle. And this is really more just like, and I'm not saying it isn't good because I love the New York slices too, but it's really more just like a factory with a conveyor belt. That's just yeah cranking them out. So it, yeah, it's a, it's a volume enterprise. So I'm a very appreciative. It's, I mean, it's, it's, and they're like on every third corner. You're like walking down the street. And I was like, okay, like we're trying, we're like speed walking to get from our hotel to the show because we had just gotten in. And it was like, all right, I'm not gonna, I don't want to have to cross the street to get a slice, but I know that if we're walking 20 blocks, I'm gonna go past eight slice places. I don't have to do this one. And then it all worked out and it was really good. So, and that's the kind of thing I'm just like, well, how come there isn't slice volume like that? In my little suburb of the 16th largest city in America. That's like New York City. Why isn't it? And it makes me sad. I miss slices. Gosh, you're good. Okay. We want to do what you're watching. Unless you, if you have something really big you want to do, that's fine. But I do want to talk about the Oscars. Because I do think it's always interesting when the Oscar nominations come out. Uh, they now do 10 nominations for Best Picture. And one, two, three, four, five. I have seen... Three of the 10 Best Picture nominees, Nathan. And I actually think that's maybe higher than usual because it's one of these things. Like, I am very excited that Top Gun Maverick got nominated. And I actually think the director should have been nominated because I don't know how you direct guys flying planes. But he didn't. But this is the kind of movie that should be nominated. It was... It was it was artistic and entertaining. And I'm very, that's one of the 10, one of the three that I've seen of the 10 movies. How many of the nominees have you seen? 
this year, the ten nominees for Best Picture. Yeah, I've also only seen three. I'd be curious to we'll find out if we've seen the same three. But that's actually low for us. For me, my my wife and I like we were we went to a lot of movies uh, before the baby comes along. But as you know, I find it ironic that they that people like have called it like your wife is like the old ball and chain. Like that's somehow like dragging you back and keeping you at home like it, the baby is the ball and chain like the you can't just like <laughs> if i literally if i wanted to tell my wife tonight like listen i'm going to a movie do whatever you want but i can't say that to the baby like the baby someone has to be here to watch the baby we can't do that to the baby uh we can't say to the dog like listen this is you can do this for a couple hours right and just go see a movie so we've only seen one movie in the theater since the baby was born and that was top gun maverick oh Nice. No, that should be a standard. That should be the award for movie you're most likely to get a babysitter to go see because you have a limited number of hours in your life to see a movie. That would be, that's a high standard, right? It's like, yeah. And then when you walked out of it, you were like, yeah, right? You were like, yes, that was worth leaving our baby for that movie. They flew up the side of a mountain. Yeah, I'm, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm not as high on it as some people are as far as like whether it should be nominated for best picture even it was really hard for me there was not a single second during that film and i liked it it was it was we like got the box of popcorn that was what we were there for and i thought they pulled it off like it's hard to pull off sequels and i thought like especially one that's going to be as anticipated as that and so to pull that off was something there was not a second during that film that i was not fully aware of the fact that i was experiencing Tom Cruise vanity exercise, like full period, like it, full stop. Like that's what that movie was. And uh, I actually like Tom Cruise as an actor, but it, the whole time I felt like I'm watching something uh, that, that takes you out of it as far as like making a deeper connection with the movie to me. Now I thought I came out of that and thought that's one of the 10 best movies I've ever seen. And that's not like I'm not like an action movie guy. Like I, if you said what are the other ten best movies, there would really be like a lot of like, sort of like down the middle like adult dramas and stuff like that, or like a, you know, The Departed or something. I mean, I'm not. Yeah, Tommy Boy. It's some weird comedies, but it's like I'm not. I'm not gonna put like I don't have like four Fast and Furious movies in my top ten. I haven't even seen those movies. I have no desire to. But I thought Top Gun Maverick was great. So the other two that I have seen of the 10 are The Fablemans, which I just saw, and the Avatar movie. Because they have an Avatar land in Disney World. And so Avatar has, like, stayed alive to me. We actually buy – I have a hat. When the Avatar land opened in in Disney's Animal Kingdom in whatever year – and actually, if I grab my hat, I will grab my hat in a second. We happened to be there the weekend it opened, like, by accident. And so – there's a whole Avatar themed land that makes you feel like you're in the movie. So Avatar, there, I mean, it was however long, 14 years between movies, but Avatar has stayed alive to people who like to go to Disney because it's like, well, there's a ride, there's a great ride, and then there's a kind of a bad ride. But then there's like walking around the land, and it's like, hey, but you know, my daughters have those banshee dragons that they ride that you've got little mechanical ones and stuff. So Avatar has remained alive to us. I thought it was okay. I thought it was fine. And then I thought the Fablemans was good. I didn't think it. I didn't think it was tremendous. I thought it was good. I thought of the three that I saw, Top Gun Maverick was the best. Really, the other two that you saw, let me get my hat. And so, uh, of those two, of those other two, I haven't seen either of those two. Um, we're going to see the Fablemans 
soon, like next, probably. That's like on our on our list of things to watch. Um, and Avatar, I I thought it was interesting that they're even making a sequel because I think you could argue that. I've never been to Disney. Well, that's not completely true. I went there to cover a basketball tournament one time. So I've been to whatever the city, the Disney city, whatever they call it, where there's just like some restaurants and stuff. I didn't go into the theme park. I'm not a Disney theme park. Disney Springs. It used to be called downtown Disney. Downtown Disney. Disney Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I've never, I thought that there was like Avatar was like the hugest movie that had the least cultural relevance or like cultural staying power in some ways. Like other massive movies like Star Wars or Jurassic Park or Jaws and or even like Titanic and the other things that James Cameron did, I feel like have stayed. Whereas Avatar, like nobody ever talked about Avatar, I guess, unless you went to Disney. So um, it's interesting that there was like this a little chunk of the culture that was still making that connection with Avatar through Disney. But I, I guess we'll probably watch it because my wife likes to watch all of the Best Picture nominees to kind of check those off so we can watch the uh, Oscars with more relevance, but I kind of don't care if I end up watching that film. So the other two that I've seen are uh, the Banshees of Inishirin, which we just watched uh, on here at home a couple of months ago. That I thought was was fantastic, but is also not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It's a it's very uh, Irish and uh, has some disturbing elements to it, even though it's like darkly comic. So kind of up my alley. I, I wouldn't recommend it for like necessarily everybody out there, but I really enjoyed it. And then Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I had talked about on the pod as one of our Watch of Watchins several months ago. That came out last spring. We saw that in the theater before uh, Bennett was born, and I was blown away by it then. And I did not really expect it to be in the position it's in now. I didn't know. The Oscars have, in some ways, are a very traditional thing, but have sort of started to lean into some more interesting best picture picks. And right now, people are saying that that might be the front runner to end up winning Best Picture. It's a uh, very unconventional kind of film to, to, to potentially win Best Picture. Um, I remember it came out at the same time as, right around the same time as the Doctor Strange uh, multiverse movie, mm-hmm. or one of those multiverse things from the Marvel thing. And I was telling people like, like don't go see that. Go see Everything Everywhere All, all at Once because it kind of deals with. Uh, the same greater themes, but in a much more interesting way, a much more fun way. Uh, you have to go in knowing that don't get too wrapped up in like trying to follow a linear plot. Let the ride kind of take you. And then at the end of the movie, it still has like that heart and um, a, a good message about family and stuff that's, that's waiting for you. So I'm uh, intrigued to see if that ends up winning best picture. It has a ton of nominations, a lot of acting nominations, and I'm, I was a big fan, and I probably will try to watch it again maybe before the Oscars. I was confused by it because it has every in both of the first two words, and that overwhelmed me. I thought that was too much every. Uh, my hat says, I traveled to Pandora May 27, 2017. So that's when the, the Pandora area, so six years ago, opened at Disney. So that kept I – thought, I, thought, I thought the Avatar thing was fine. All right, let's uh, wrap this up because we got to get out of here. What are you thinking about? You thinking about uh, anything? I, I forgot about the whatcha thinking part. I was ready for whatcha eating. I was ready for whatcha watching. So I'll, I'll yield my whatcha thinking time to you. So I did this. This is self-indulgent. Hey, this is self-indulgent. Buckeye talk. So Scott Rowland got elected to the Baseball mm-hmm. Hall of Fame this week. And when I started covering my first big beat, uh, I 
moved from Northwest Indiana. Well, actually, it's not my first big beat because I was lucky enough. I covered the Chicago Bulls um, for like a year and a half, but I wasn't a traveling beat writer. Um, I did. I was at the finals in Utah in 05 for the flu game, but I didn't travel like with the Bulls year round. But I went and I got hired at the Wilmington News Journal in the suburbs of Philadelphia to be the Philadelphia Phillies beat writer. And I was a traveling, like not necessarily the full 162, but close um, for the Phillies in 1998, 99, 2000, and 2001. And Scott Rowland was the National League Rook of the Year in 1997. So for four years, he was the best player on the team that I covered. And Kurt Schilling was there for most of it. Uh, also, it was the, they were the two guys. The Phillies were terrible. Terry Francona, now the Guardians manager, was the manager for three of the four years that I was there. But this was a guy who I started on that beat when I was 24. And I think when I started covering him, Scott Rowland was 22. And he had been in the league for a year when I started covering him. And then I covered like his entire development as like, this guy's going to turn into a good player. And then I was, I was still around the team. I stopped covering the team full time. You know, I came to start covering Ohio state in 05. So still like in 02, 03, 04, I was still around the Philly. That just wasn't the full-time beat writer. He got traded to the Cardinals. I think in 05 or 06. No, like in 05. No, it was earlier than that. It was earlier than that because he was there was early, for 04. 03 yeah. maybe. Yeah, he was there for the 04 World Series. So so I was there when he got traded. I remember when he got – it's like, right, yeah. I remember when he got traded. And uh, and it was just like – and now he's in the Hall of Fame. And it's like a – like it's not about me, but like it was a thing. It's like I knew this guy when he was 23. He was 22, 23, and I was 24 or 25. And then – you know, for whatever reason, I'm on a whatever email list and they sent out that they were having a Zoom call. And for some reason, I'm on the Baseball Hall of Fame Zoom call uh, email list. So I got on the Zoom call when he was talking about getting inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, and I, I didn't ask a question because I wasn't going to interrupt the people actually doing their jobs. Uh, but it was just like a thing. It was like kind of like a thing of like, here I am. I'm almost 50. He's like 47. He's just got the greatest honor you can get in your sport. And I knew him two decades ago. And he was like a great guy. Like I had many multiple one-on-one conversations with Scott Rowland. And he was one of the guys that also taught me a lesson. Everybody on that beat, Nathan, when I covered the Phillies, there were about seven or eight full-time traveling beat writers. Every single person on that beat thought they had a great relationship with Scott Rowland. And when he got traded and left and everybody had his number, everybody called him and he didn't call anybody back <laughs> and he just left. There yeah. was no goodbye news conference. And it was like, Oh, you think you're a great friend with the guy. And it's like, it's just a business proposition. Yeah. So that was like an eye opening thing for me. Cause I would have thought like Scott Rowland's my guy. And it's like, he didn't call me back, but my, my biggest memory of him. And this is not surprising. I had a shirt that was a golf shirt, but the pattern of it, it was, I got it at a Disney store and the pattern of it was just the word grumpy. It was like a grumpy dwarf shirt. It was a blue shirt and the word grumpy written in gold over and over and over again. That instead of it being stripes, the word grumpy served as the stripes. And one day we were at Scott. I wore that because I'm a professional. I wore that to cover a game. We were standing around Scott Rowland's locker, four or five of us talking to him before a game. And he stopped in the middle of the interview and looked at my shirt and said, does that say grumpy? Like he was like dissecting. He was figuring out the pattern of my shirt in the middle of the interview. And I said, yeah, isn't it cool? And he said, no. And then we went on with the interview. <laughs> and that, that, that alone was Scott Rowland. So 
Yeah. Anybody who was on the fence about I think voting that tells for us him should have that should have put him over the top. That might be everything you need to know about me and everything you need to know about Scott Rowland in one story. So congratulations to Scott Rowland. He's a good guy. He's a very good baseball player. I'm actually on the fence about whether he's a Hall of Famer. I think Steve. he's a very good baseball player. I'm not sure he's a Hall of Famer. So I've uh, he's from uh, Jasper, Indiana, by the way. So which you probably knew, but like so, the time I spent in Indiana, he's still very revered there. And I was surprised that there has been so much consternation about his election from people who know baseball, even um, because it, the the one thing that sets it apart is this is maybe nerding too much on baseball, but like positionally third base is very, very, very underrepresented in the hall of fame. And you go look at a lot of the metrics that are out there now, analytics and things like that. And Scott Rowland, I think is inarguably one of the 10 best third basemen in baseball history. And it's even probably climbs the list a little bit. When you start taking out guys like Paul Molitor and um, Edgar Martinez, who spent a lot of time at DH Scott Rowland, even though he played in the AL and came out, you know, he was playing during interleague play, did not have a single game at DH in his career. He was a third baseman the whole time. Uh, eight gold gloves. Um, someone was trying to compare him. There's a, there was one tweet that kind of went viral. A guy who was comparing him to Mark Grace. And there's just no, to me, there's no comparison. And Mark Grace was a great player. But like I think Scott Rowland definitely surpasses that threshold. And really, frankly, now that they've started letting some people in, once Tony LaRusso shoehorned Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago, like the standards have really dropped as far as what it takes to get into the Hall of Fame, which is, I know there's people who would argue that that's a good thing, that maybe it was too select, too overly uh, exclusive for too long. But uh, I, I think Scott Rowland is a Hall of Fame player. Excellent defensively, no doubt about it, and very good offensively and did it for a long time. So congratulations to Scott Rowland, who on the Zoom, like, looked the same. He didn't look like a, I mean, he looked, he looked like the guy I remembered. It's one of those things that's weird with like, you see a person all the time, then you don't see him really for 20 years. And it's like, oh no, they look the same. Okay. That'll do it for this edition of Buckeye Talk. We'll be back. The plan is Tuesday, the CJ Stroud Legacy Pod. We'll see if that actually happens. I think it will. For now, for Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>